Amen. Brothers and sisters, we have sung praises to our God. We have heard from his word. We have prayed to him in praise. Let us now go before him in prayer. You may be seated. Would you please bow with me in prayer? God, you have bought us with your blood, your precious cleansing blood. And now I would consider none more than Jesus crucified. May you be glorified in us. Father, that is our prayer this morning, that you would be glorified through the activity, through the ministry, through the purpose of the South Canyon Baptist Church here in Rapid City, South Dakota. Father, we pray that our singular focus would be to glorify you, Father, to make you known, to spread your glory amongst this community, amongst this nation, and Lord willing, as you call us and purpose us to it across the world. Father, we are so thankful for the fact that you have chosen earthen and weakened and cracked vessels like us to display your marvelous, marvelous grace. Lord, we recognize that there is nothing in us that would triumph Uh, majesty that would triumph glory that would triumph praise but because we are found and hidden in christ we declare the praises of the one who has rescued us from sin father we praise you for that this morning and i pray lord that that would be the heartbeat and the mood and the quality of this church for days and days and days until you return father we thank you for this purpose And Father, as we think about our church, we are thankful that we're not the only church that seeks to praise you and to glorify you here in this area. So Father, we pray for churches time to time within this community and within this area that preach the same gospel, that endeavor to preach your word, and that have partnered with us in ministry. So Father, we pray this morning for Black Hills Baptist Church in Whitewood. Father, we're so thankful for Black Hills Baptist, and we're thankful for their head pastor, Sean Donnelly. Father, it was so good that even just this weekend we were able to fellowship with him as we talked about things within the association. So, Father, we pray that you would bless Pastor Sean this morning as he preaches your word and as he makes the glorious truth of your gospel known. Father, we pray that you would be with him as he expounds the gospel that if there would be anybody that does not know who you are or who Jesus Christ is and what he has come to do in his death in his burial, and his resurrection. Father, we pray that Sean would open that and make that clear. Father, we pray that the community of Whitewood would be blessed by Black Hills Baptist. And Lord, that the partnership that they have in the gospel with us might be reached throughout this whole Black Hills community. Father, thank you for Black Hills Baptist and for Pastor Sean. Be with them this day. Father, your word instructs us that from time to time we ought to pray for those who are in authority over us. So we do that here from time to time in our church. We pray for those that um, exercise authority, whether it be governmental or otherwise, uh, here uh, at this church. And so, Father, we pray this morning, we lift up our governor, Chrissy Nome. Father, we thank you for her and we pray that you would continue to make her mad, to make her make good decisions for the glory of you. Father, we pray that she would bear in mind the people of South Dakota as she makes decisions. God, we pray that she would know what is right from wrong. And ultimately, Father, that she would stand for justice and truth and equity. Father, we pray that you would convict her whenever she does not make decisions for that. That she would know that authority 
that has been given to her is not ultimately in any effort of hers, but that you've purposed and ordained that she would have authority. So, Father, we pray that Governor Nome would know that, that she would govern in a way that makes her understand and realize that her authority is temporary and that she can use that authority ultimately to glorify and honor you. But, Father, we pray that she would govern in such a way and make decisions and help pass laws and veto laws in a way that ultimately is good for the people of South Dakota. Father, we thank you for her, and we just pray that you would be with her in the days ahead in her tenure. Father, we turn now to other countries where we know that there's a Christian witness and, and uh, in the church there. So, Father, we pray this morning for the country of Cambodia. Father, I was just reminded personally this last week of just how much ruin and destruction went on in that church because of evil regimes. And so, Father, we pray that you would continue to heal the land of Cambodia. And Father, we pray that you would use the Christians, that you would use the church in Cambodia to do that. Father, we pray that you would strengthen the local pastors there. Father, we pray that you would help them to preach the truth, that they would make Jesus known, even against a government that is oftentimes corrupt and dangerous. Father, we pray that you would help your gospel go forth and empower in truth. Father, there are 95 percent of the people there that do not have access to the gospel. So, Father, we pray that you would strengthen the churches there, that you would strengthen the Christians there to make known the glories of who Jesus Christ is. And, Father, we pray that you might even raise up people here within this congregation to have a burden for the people of Cambodia, that they would ultimately desire to see believers and churches there that are strengthened in the truth of the gospel and on the Bible. So, Father, we pray for ourselves that we might be mindful to pray for countries like Cambodia where the gospel has little access and that we might in some small way give support or ourselves go for that very purpose so that your name might be known, so that your name might be glorified. And Father, as we now again turn back to ourselves and think about what we're getting ready to do in the preaching of your word, Father, I pray that you would use this time to strengthen your children that you would chip away whatever is not right within us, that you would let the word of Christ be a mirror to our souls and that you would ultimately use it to help us lean into Jesus. Holy Spirit, we need you this morning. We need you to fill us. We need you to quicken our hearts, to make us alive in Christ. And Father, we need you in this moment. We need you to come in power and authority as the word is preached. Father, speak to your people. Speak to your people through a frail vessel like me so that you might be known and that Christ might be glorified and that ultimately people who are dead in their sin might be raised back to life because of the marvelous grace and love that you have for them. Father, do that this morning by the power of your word and we know that you can because your word says that it will not return void. Father, do this for your glory and for your namesake. We ask this in Jesus, our Savior, the Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning, friends. It's good to see you all. It's uh, good to be in week two of this study in the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, it's going to be really helpful to turn to Philippians chapter 1, and we'll be starting in verse 12. And unfortunately, I don't have the page number again because I forgot to write it down. So anybody with a blue... It's 980. Oh, hey, look there. 980. Every week, I probably should start writing this down, right? 
Yeah, so if you'll turn there, it's going to be really helpful uh, to be able to follow along. But as you're turning there, um, I, I think it's important to say this, and it probably isn't a, you know, a revelation for anybody, but I think we as people, we love underdog stories. If I were to ask you what your favorite book or movie is, I probably could guess within some form of generality that it's some story about a person from a lowly state overcoming, overcoming massively overwhelming odds to rise up and accomplish a feat, whether that be mentally, emotionally, physically, whatever. That's kind of the synopsis of most underdog stories. And if I were to ask you, hey, like, what's your favorite movie or what's your favorite book? I bet you that captures it pretty easily. I mean, that's really the synopsis of, of movies like Rudy, Avengers Endgame, and even uh, a movie like Sleepless in Seattle. It, it, it's true for books like Pride and Prejudice and Lord of the Rings and even a book like Oliver Twist. Ultimately, all of these stories are underdog stories. And I think these stories make us believe that if we find something within ourselves, then maybe we too can also overcome whatever circumstance or obstacle that is facing before us. But I think the reason that we like these stories so much and the reason that we like movies like that so much, though, is because of something, I think, quite frankly, a lot deeper. Truthfully, we want to be the heroes and heroines of our lives. We want to feel like at some level, we have the power and we have the ability within us to change our destiny. Friends, while this message of the underdog, it's, it's inspiring, I'll admit that. I think what we find in our text this morning in Philippians chapter 1 is actually completely the opposite of that. I think what we'll see in our text this morning is that there's nothing really inside of us or about us that causes us to overcome difficult circumstances and situations. There's nothing in us that changes our lives that can help us push through and plow through overwhelming events. There's nothing within us, ultimately, that can even face something like the imminence of death that can make us overcome it. Rather, what we're going to find this morning in our text is that it is God, and it is God who overcomes all things, and it is our faith in him, not ourselves, that helps us to live and perhaps even die in a way that shows who really is in control of our destiny and who is really worthy of the praise and glory. So, with that said, why don't we go ahead and start reading in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12, and we'll be reading through verse 26. Again, starting in verse 12, it says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me really has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with 
full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause of glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. I love this text, and it's really interesting, so let's just kind of dive in. What is the structure of this text? So in verses 12 through 14, what we see is Paul talking about how his time in prison has actually really served to advance the gospel. And in verses 15 through 18, and really kind of the first half of 18, Paul talks about how the gospel advances despite those having really poor and awful motives. It's still advancing despite those people having bad hearts about it. And then in verses 19 through 26, we find that Paul talks about his assurance of God's gospel advancing work that will happen, whether Paul is living or dying. He knows that the gospel will advance. And and I think if we're kind of taking stock of what we just talked about last week and, and what we get confronted with in the text this week, it feels quite different, doesn't it? Last week, we, we heard some very sweet words from Paul, and, and those first 11 verses are some of the most tender and most kind uh, as we've ever read in all of Paul's letters. And now we get to this weird section of the text where Paul's talking about, hey, being in prison is a good thing, uh, proclaiming the, there are people that are proclaiming the gospel in some way to like hurt or afflict Paul, and, and, and he wants to die so he can be with Christ. It's just like the total opposite of what went on last week, of just these really sweet words, and now it's almost kind of this hodgepodge of different thoughts that he has. Why is that? Why is it that Paul suddenly switches the mood, and and why is it that it seems like he's so overwhelmingly optimistic? Why would Paul be able to have such a distinct and strangely optimistic attitude despite his circumstances of being in jail and even wanting to die and wishing to die for the sake of being with Christ? How is he able to do that? Well, I think if we were to read verses 9 and through 11, again in chapter 1, we would see that Paul's prayer for the church in Philippi, they have a singular purpose. They have a reason for why he said all of those sweet things, why he was praying for them. And we find that in verse 11. It says in verse 11 that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to or for the glory and praise of God. Paul wants the church there in Philippi to live their lives and to walk in faith that ultimately God would receive glory and praise. That was his instruction last week. And now in these verses, he wants to illustrate a life that is seen, that is singularly focused on God's glory and praise. And he illustrates that by using himself as an example. So with that said, I think the main idea of this passage, which we try to do every week, we try to figure out what's the thrust of this passage. And I think the main idea is this. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. In good fashion of Tanner Blosser preaching, I'm going to break that down into two points, which are very obvious from the main idea. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
And what we're going to need to do within those two points is we're going to ask two specific questions. What does that mean, and how does this happen? So with that said, let's look at our first point, to live is Christ, and ask our question, what does this mean? And I think we find this in verses 12 through the first half of 18. And I think the first thing that this means is that we focus, first of all, on God's glory in any circumstances. As we look at the last three verses, we find that Paul's circumstances, they're not ideal. At least I don't think so, and and perhaps maybe you don't think so as well. They aren't ideal for the sake of gospel advancement. Being in prison doesn't just glare out, wow, that will definitely make the gospel go forth in power. And yet, he tells his readers that his imprisonment has not only served to make the gospel known to those who hadn't known it yet, but it's also served to encourage the brothers in Christ as they seek to proclaim the gospel as well. It's weird, right? It doesn't make sense. Prison is serving as a place that the gospel is triumphing. What's Paul doing here? Is he just trying to see the sunny side of things? Is he just blindly optimistic and just saying, wow, look at what the Lord's doing here, just so that he can overcome his circumstances? No, I, I, I don't think that's what Paul's doing here at all. I think what we see here first is Paul is living for Christ by ultimately placing his circumstances not in his own hands, but in God's. Friends, a part of what our job is as Christians is to look at our trials, to look at our circumstances, to look at our sufferings, and say, God, I'm going to give them to you. For Paul and for others who would have been imprisoned for the faith, it would have been easy to wonder if proclaiming the faith in Christ would have been worth it. They would have questioned whether or not, especially if the person that was leading them was in prison suffering, even if it was house arrest, they would have wondered, is this worth it? Is it worth making Jesus known? But what we see here with Paul is that he sees even the sufferings, even the trial of his life, his imprisonment, as an opportunity to make Christ known to the whole imperial guard and to those who would hear it. Paul is taking this opportunity to instruct the readers that God has purpose in every situation that he places Christians in. Whether you're in seventh grade, whether you're in college, whether you're retired, maybe you're working 80 hours a week, it doesn't matter. God is using those circumstances and those situations for a purpose. And I think we have to ask ourselves, well, what is that purpose? What is the purpose of God placing us in any circumstance? Well, as we look at the text, you see that Paul at the forefront is ultimately showing that his life is not his own. It's God's. And he calls and exhorts the Philippians to glorify God at the end of verse 11, as we just talked about. And now he's serving as a model to glorify God for their instruction. I don't think Paul is just using himself as an example and say, hey, look at me. Aren't I awesome at this? Look how well I'm doing at being able to proclaim Christ and to glorify God. That's not what he's doing at all. I don't think he's even trying to say, hey, listen, if I can make the best out of my circumstance in a Roman prison, even if it's house arrest, I don't think he's saying, like, if I can make the best out of this, then you can do your normal lives just fine. He's not saying that at all. No, I think what he desires for them is that their eyes not be so focused on what's going on around them, 
but instead that they would reorient their hearts and minds to the default setting of asking themselves, in whatever situation that they're in, how might the Lord sovereignly use me in my situation? How might he be using me in whatever circumstance to glorify himself? We have to remember that the church in Philippi would have been absolutely distressed over Paul's imprisonment. You have to remember, Paul was the original planter, the original pastor of this church. They dearly loved and cared about Paul. And it would have been absolutely earth-shattering to them to know that this pastor, this planter of the church that they belonged to, to the faith that they held, is now imprisoned. It would have been absolutely nerve-wracking to them. Would it be worth it to hold on to this faith? For Paul, he's trying to help them see. Yes, the Lord has caused in his sovereign ways, and his sovereign mystery, yes, for me to be imprisoned. And yes, I know you dearly care about me. I know that you really care about the faith that you're holding on to. I see that you're worried about that. But look at what God is doing through me despite that. He's trying to help them lift their eyes from the circumstances into Christ and to see what God is doing even in the midst of suffering. Friends, I think we see this uh, in a really worldly good example like this whenever we watch runners. Paul will use this as a later instruction, but Paul is like a runner. He's like a runner that is not so much focusing on the pain that is happening in his legs. He's not thinking about how out of breath he is, which I would be as well if I was running. He's not thinking about that. Instead, he is thinking about the end of the race. He's thinking about the prize that is set before him. He is thinking about the accomplishment of finishing. This is what Paul is doing. Not focusing on the external activity, but reminding himself of what the Lord has ultimately called him and purpose to. It's a focus, just like for the runner, to remind themselves of the purpose for which they're running. And it's a focus for Paul to remind himself of which the purpose that he's in prison. And as he says in the text, it's ultimately to make Christ known. So, before we move on, I want to point something out. Just because Paul doesn't want this church's sole focus to be on him being in prison, and because Paul doesn't seem like he's focusing on prison, it doesn't necessarily take away the fact that being in prison would have been very difficult even if it was house arrest, the reality of Paul being under imprisonment would have been hard. As we get to the end of the letter, we're going to find that Paul, he has basic needs that need to be met because he's in prison. He is suffering in some way or another because he is under arrest. And this church, they can help him out with that. So at the end of the day, yes, being in prison would have been hard. Friends, just because it seems like Paul is more concerned about God's glory instead of his present circumstances does not change the fact that it would have been difficult. It's difficult to suffer. It's difficult to go through hard things. Just because I think as we see, Paul is instructing us to look at God's glory more than our present circumstances, that doesn't change the fact that your circumstances might be difficult and they might be hard. 
He's not instructing you to do some mental gymnastics, whether emotionally or mentally, to say, I'm just going to manifest in my mind this positive aura and these positive vibes to take me out of my current situation. If I just do that, it's going to manifest itself in some way to where my reality is going to be better. That's not what he's getting at at all. He is acknowledging that, yes, this circumstance is hard. We can call a spade a spade. We can call evil evil. We can call suffering suffering, friends. And there's this lie that if we just remove ourselves mentally from whatever present circumstance that we're in that's hard, if, if we just remove ourselves that way and, and focus on the positive and, and focus on this or that, then, then we'll be okay. That's not what Paul is doing here at all. No, what Paul is wanting these believers to see is that a heart that is set on God's glory is going to be in a much better place spiritually than the person who does not fix their eyes on Jesus you can still say, God, this is hard. And yet still be instructed to fix your eyes on Jesus. Friends, he's wanting them to have a heart that can endure suffering and yet see what the Lord might be doing in his sovereignty in their lives, even amidst a difficult circumstance. I think we see Paul illustrating and talking about this kind of mentality in 2 Corinthians. He, he says in 2 Corinthians 4 and kind of at the beginning of chapter 5, he says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. What we see here as Paul is talking to the church in Corinth and as he's talking to this church in Philippi is that our eyes need to be fixed to something outside of our present circumstances, but to the one that holds our present circumstances. Friends, to live in Christ means to think about and to understand that our circumstances can glorify God in whatever way that it looks. The other way that we see that to live is Christ and, and how we understand what that means is, is we rejoice in the gospel advanced divide, despite the motivation. As Paul goes on uh, in detail about those who have become bold to share Christ, he talks about as well in verses 15 through 18 that some do not proclaim Christ with a good motive. He says of these people in verses 15 through 17, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. That's a weird thing. They're proclaiming the gospel, seeking to hurt somebody. It doesn't make any sense at all. And, and Paul is saying, that's bad. You shouldn't do that. As one commentator put it, he said that motives matter. It matters not only what we say and do, but why we do it. It's so odd, I think, to read in our Bibles that there are Christians in the early church that proclaimed Jesus with their mouths, and yet in their hearts they were seeking to somehow hurt another person. It doesn't make any sense at all. As far as we can tell, they're not preaching or proclaiming anything that's antithetical to the gospel like we read in, in Galatians, but their hearts, especially toward Paul, 
seem to be in the wrong place, and they're ultimately focused not on really and truly making Christ known, but doing it out of selfish ambition to make their brand, to make their reputation more known. In the eyes of Paul, it is a heinous thing to involve yourself in any ministry in Christ for the sake of making yourself known. Ministry friends, whether pastoral, missions, maybe you door greet or work at the connect desk, whatever that may be, it is for the sole purpose, not that you would be known, but that Christ might be known. And, and while that's shocking, that there are people like, that are using a very good thing, like preaching the gospel, to hurt somebody else, while that may be shocking, I think what's more shocking is what Paul says in light of that. Look at verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice? What in the world? I'm telling you, if that was me, if I knew that there were people that were aiming to hurt me and afflict me, my reflex would have been, you know what, I'm, I'm going after them. And yet Paul says, I rejoice. Paul does not take this opportunity, friends, to devise some plan where he and the Philippian church have a smear campaign against these pastors and these proclaimers of the gospel, but he instead rejoices that the Lord would even use those with poor motives to make Christ known. He praises the Lord and rejoices that the Lord advances the gospel no matter what. I think, again, what we see here that Paul is doing is he's deciding to focus on the purpose of their preaching, which is declaring Christ, instead of the circumstances, which is their poor motivations that afflict Paul. Paul seeks to help these believers in Philippi to see that to live is Christ means rejoicing in any circumstance that the gospel is advanced. I think one way that we see this done really well here within this local body and and one way that we fight against those poor motives in this church is is by sharing the pulpit. I I mentioned this last week that no matter what, there's going to be somebody up here preaching, explaining the text, applying it to our lives, and making the glories of the gospel known. No matter what, that is always going to happen here week after week. And I know for the leadership here, it certainly matters that we have men who are qualified to do that up here. But at the end of the day, as long as the word of God is being preached and the people of South Canyon Baptist Church are being fed, the elders and the pastors rejoice in that. Friends, this is why we fight against pride. This is why we fight against a singular person only proclaiming the gospel We do this because we don't want that singular person to be the focus of this church. We want that to be the gospel. And we share the pulpit in light of that. And I praise God that we have allowed for that within this church. It's a sweet thing. So in light of now seeing that to live as Christ means that we focus on God's glory in any circumstance and that we rejoice in the gospel being advanced no matter what, I think it's important to ask ourselves a second question. How does this happen? Whenever we think about to live as Christ, how does this happen within the local church and how does this happen in our individual lives? Well, ultimately, I think the broad application from this first section as we seek to live for Christ is that we need to love the glory of Jesus more than our own. This, I believe, is something that 
all of us as Christians, we know this. We know that we should care about Christ's glory, about Jesus' honor and reverence more than our own, but honestly, it's much harder to do than it is to say. So, how does this happen? How do we make sure that Christ's glory is more important as husbands and wives, as mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, and so on and so forth? Well, I think primarily what we need to do is we need to take stock and we need to look at our hearts carefully. A part of being a Christian, friends, is doing the careful, doing a part of the careful self-examination that the Holy Spirit causes in us to determine if our hearts are more focused on ourselves or on Christ. I think if we took a quick look back at this last week, I wonder how many of our decisions, our words, our actions, our thoughts, our social media posts would be seeking to further our own praise, our own glory, or would be seeking to further Christ's. I wonder if we would see in the way that we worked this last week or sat in school or loved our spouses and kids, I wonder if it would show that we are more concerned about taking the position of glory that is ultimately reserved for Jesus. Friends, I would encourage you after the service today, talk about this at lunch. Talk about this in your life groups this week. In what ways do we see us jockeying for position of glory where Christ should be? Talk about that after the service today. Because as we see ultimately a life that is set to live for Christ is not one that's set upon ourselves but on Jesus. And as, as we've thought about a life that's set to live for Christ, we also see how Paul in his life, even as he's facing the potential of death, is living to do that. And I think that brings us to our second point, which is to die is gain, which we find in the latter half of verse 18 and 226. So the first question that we ask, to die is gain, what does that mean? It's a fanciful term, but what does that mean ultimately? As we look now to Paul's words in the second half of verse 18 to the end of our section, we find that Paul, he walks a, a very fine line of sorts. It's a, it's a line that claims in verse 19 that the circumstance that he finds himself in will turn out for his deliverance. But that deliverance that he's talking about here, friends, is not necessarily one that will ultimately mean that will turn out for his deliverance and freedom and walking out of his imprisonment. He may not even walk out alive. He says in verses 19 and 20, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. I wondered to myself, whenever I was studying this text, is this just Paul, like, hoping for the best, but expecting the worst? Is he just, again, trying to do some sort of mental hopscotch to make himself feel better about the potential that he might die? What's going on here? Well, I think... If we can just slowly walk through these verses, I think it will help us understand the punch, the thrust of Paul's argument here. So, remember, he concluded our previous section by stating that he is rejoicing in the gospel being advanced. Despite the motivation, despite what people are doing, he is rejoicing in that. And then he says that he will rejoice, verse 19, look with me there, for or in the Greek, because that he knows that through or because of the Philippians' prayers, 
and the supernatural help of the Holy Spirit, this will turn out for his deliverance. Or in some translations, it's better rendered his salvation. He is focusing ultimately that the Lord has delivered him, that he has saved Paul. And it's the salvation that is given to him, that's given to Paul by the Lord, that he can hope and expect that Christ will be honored and will receive glory, whether he is alive or whether he dies. Because Paul has salvation in Christ, he can hope for salvation and deliverance in his current circumstance. Because he has that salvation, he can do that. He can pray, Lord, I want to be out of prison. He can pray that, but he can also rest in knowing that even if, even if he is never delivered from prison, even if he is never saved from death, there has been a greater salvation given to him by Jesus, and he does not need to fear death. Instead of placing all of his hopes into either life or death, Paul enters into this tension, and he enters into the tension of his circumstances and proclaims, I will have salvation no matter what, and Christ is going to be glorified in either my living or my dying. Friends, this is why he can so thunderously state in verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Friends, how can death the most terrifying prospect for all of us who are probably sitting in here. How can that be gain to Paul? Well, he explains in verses 22 and 23. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. It's a tension. He enters into it. If Paul lives and he's delivered from prison, great. That's awesome news. That means more God-honoring and more work to make Christ known in his life. And if not, if that means death, it's Jesus. He gets Jesus at the end of his life. Jesus stands ready for Paul, and he welcomes him into his open arms, even at the prospect of death. He can rejoice in death because the culmination of his faith, the one who called him from his blindness, the one who took him down from the horse that he was riding upon, the one that said, you will serve me and you will suffer for my sake, the one that called him to that, death will let him see that person again. He will see Jesus. This is how he can proclaim. Death is gain. Friends, I understand this death it would have been costly to the Philippian church, and it certainly would have been costly to Paul. But what we see here is a paradigm shifted. Friends, you can gain everything if you lose it all. You will have it all when death, the greatest enemy of every person, of every Christian, whenever that death becomes the prizest thing, it can be gain. You will have it all when death becomes your gain. One of my favorite pastors, John Piper, summarizes this idea when he stated, you have all the losses that death will cost you, your family, your job, your dream retirement, the friends you leave behind, your favorite bodily pleasures. You add up all these losses, and then you replace them only with death and Christ. 
if and when you do that, you joyfully say, gain. And then Christ is magnified in your dying. Christ is most magnified in your death when you are so satisfied in Christ that losing everything and getting only Christ is called gain. Friends, what we see here, that death is gain, is ultimately that Christ is our ultimate satisfaction. We care nothing more for the things of this world, but ultimately our sole satisfaction is in Christ. Friends, I think this is what Jesus was getting at whenever he was talking about the pearl of great price in Matthew 13. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Do you see this? The, the pearl that would have cost him everything, it'd be worth everything. By selling all, he would gain all. And Paul so wonderfully illustrates this for the Christian. That Jesus is so worth everything. He's so worth all that we are, all that we have, that we can lose everything, everything about ourselves, even our very lives, for the sake of having Christ. But does this mean that Paul should seek out death like some sort of weird sadist? No. Does this mean that he pokes on the imperial guard just so that he can have Jesus? No, that's not what he's saying. Instead, what we see in these last three verses is that Paul is convinced that for now, it's better for him not to die and to strive in his living so that the Philippian church may glory in Christ and progress in the faith. Again, we see Paul being convinced that his life, Paul's life, is ultimately not determined by Paul. It's determined by God. And Paul's submission to God in this shows a denial of, of his own self for the sake of others and ultimately for the sake of God. A part of dying to gain is understanding that whenever we deny ourselves, it's not ultimately about us, but it's because of Christ. Our satisfaction is so hidden with him that we die to self-regard. We die to self-advancement. I think this brings us to our other question within this section, to die is gain. How does this happen? I think this is the hardest question out of everything that we go through this morning. This is the hardest question to answer. If for Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain, how do we figuratively die now so that we can gain Christ? So to answer that, I want to talk to two different groups of people. First, I want to talk to Christians. I want to address my brothers and sisters in Christ first. The ones who maybe perhaps this morning you are feeling that tension of wanting to be with Christ and yet knowing that maybe the Lord isn't done with you. Perhaps maybe for some of you, you're struggling mentally to feel like your purpose here for a reason. I want to talk to you first. I realize to die to yourself is a much easier thing to say than to do. But what I think what we find here with Paul is the application from Charles Spurgeon. We need to die daily. I've also heard it placed this way. Uh, A pastor that I really admire, Jared Wilson, said this, there are a million little deaths to die along the road to the big one. We need to die daily. So for us, my friends, our constant thought to drive us to this place, to die daily, is to join with Paul whenever he says in Galatians 2.20, and we sang this this morning, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, 
But Christ who lives in me, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. So friends, what do we do when we need to die one of our daily deaths? As Paul says here in Galatians, we look to the cross. When you're tempted to make your opinion about a cultural or political issue over another person that could be potentially divisive, you remind yourself that you have been crucified with Christ. Husbands and wives, when you're tempted to insist on your own way and to exercise more earthly dominion and leadership over one another than godly leadership, remind yourself to look to the cross. Kids, whenever you want more screen time, or maybe teenagers, you want a later curfew, and if you're in Christ, I want you to remember that it's no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. Members of South Canyon Baptist Church, whenever we're in a place where maybe we don't agree with a decision that's been made or maybe a preference of ours in the music or something else, whatever we can get tied up on as members of this church, remember that all of us who are members have been crucified with Christ. We look to the cross. Friends, as we die a thousand little deaths each day, when we are confronted with the potential circumstance of real death, we can look to the cross and we can look to the cross and say, gain. That's how we die daily. Maybe you're here and and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian. I'm glad you're here. And this is the second group I want to talk to. People who, you're like, this is crazy. I don't don't even want to have this conversation. I I do want to talk to you. I I want you to think about this. Whether you were invited here by a friend or a family member, or maybe you came of your own volition, what we're proclaiming here, dying to yourself, dying, it's a core tenet of being a Christian. I can understand. It's, it's odd that Christians talk about death and we glorify death in, in honestly, a pretty odd and, and weird way. I get that. But friend, the reality is, is we all die. And we all must die. You can't avoid it. It's coming for you in one way or another. But what separates the Christian from a person that doesn't believe in the gospel, what separates him from the rest of the world is not necessarily how we view death or the afterlife, but by whose death we are resting upon. My friend, for you, I pray that you would rest in and trust upon Christ's love and his death for you. He showed you that he loved you, friend, by dying for you in your place. I beg of you today to consider dying to your sinful self and repenting of that sin and turning to Christ in faith and trusting in his death for you on the cross. I pray that you would do that this morning. To not rest in your own efforts or your own glory, but to rest in the one who loved you enough to look upon the most horrific death possible and say, I love you. Trust in this Jesus. Trust in the one that died for you. Jesus took the sting of death for you, friends, so that you might live forever and so that you might be able to die to yourself today and gain everything. Christ did that for you.
We should conclude. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We're all underdogs and our final destiny is death. Whether that means you've rested in the death of Jesus Christ or maybe you're wondering if death is coming for you and what that might mean for you. There's nothing we can do to overcome that death. There's two options. You either rest in the death of Jesus Christ or you die today. So will you die today? Will you die to yourself? Will you die to your own self-regard and your own nature for the sake of gaining everything? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the fact that you do call us and you invite us to death. And so, Father, we pray this morning that for those that may not have been faced with the reality that they can die today spiritually for the sake of gaining everything, we pray this morning that they would know that, that they would rest in that, and that ultimately you would work out salvation in them. God, I pray for us that do trust in you that we would die a thousand deaths each day so that we can face the big one, the biggest death, and say gain. Help us to do that. Strengthen us by your spirit to do that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.